This week is Parshas Vaeschanan. Vaeschanan means, and I, I pleaded or I implored. And we, we pick up in the middle of a conversation. Moshe, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, book of Devarim. And the book of Devarim essentially is Moshe's, well, begins with Moshe's speech to the nation. Uh, he is about a month and change away from his death. And he knows it and everyone knows it. And very quickly after Moshe is dying, Moshe dies, they spend 30 days mourning for him, and then they're into Israel. So this is the last party message that Moshe can and does give the nation. And it begins with Devarim. And the whole, the whole, the whole parsha of last week was Moshe giving a speech to the nation and giving them words of rebuke and uh, trying to make sure that they're on the right path towards where they need to go. And uh, this week picks up in the middle of a conversation. And Moshe is talking about the fact that the Almighty told him that you will not merit to enter the land of Israel. Uh, Joshua is going to go in your stead. And even though Joshua has to fill in the biggest shoes ever, you know, you want to come, uh, you, you don't want to come after the great legend. You want to come after the guy who messed everything up, which is why a third time in this week's parasha, we see that Moshe is is told you have to make sure that you empower and strengthen Joshua, make sure he, uh, the people know it, that he knows it, that he could do it and he will do it, the Almighty will help him. But Moshe is telling the nation what happened to him when it became clear to him that he's not going to enter the land. And he tells uh, the nation that he started praying. And it's really interesting to look at how he prayed to try to get the Almighty to change his position. Remember, when we pray, prayer is a man deciding what's better, right? We know that God's in charge of the world. But with prayer, man as well, mankind as well, we could have a say and we could lobby. And if God says one thing and we could pray and change the reality, which is pretty astonishing. And that's where the greatness of what we are, like our being created in the image of God, we too have a little bit of power in determining what happens in the world. So Moshe is praying that he should be able to cross the Jordan and enter the land. But the word va'eschanon, the word va'es, the Hebrew word that it begins this week's parsha is a kind of prayer, but it also comes from the word chinam, which means free. And Rashi tells us that Moshe is praying and he wants a freebie. Typically, when you want something, you have to give something else in return. So it's quite common for people to say, listen, I'll, I'll give you something, you give me something back in return. So Moshe theoretically could have told God, listen, I did a lot of mitzvos. The mitzvos accrue some reward for me. I'm willing to exchange a sliver of reward in exchange for entering the land. That's not what he does. And you would think if Moshe, if anyone has excess reward that maybe they could use to get what they want, it would be Moshe. But Moshe is not willing to compromise on any little bit of his mitzvos, even if it means that that would be the only path for him to get what it is that he wants to get in the land of Israel. And it's an interesting thing that uh, Rashi tells us that Tzadikim, when they pray, when the righteous pray, they only ask for freebies. They're never willing to compromise on their spiritual vault of rewards in order to get uh, in order to get um, 
something in this world. And even though Moshe, when he wants to go into the land, it has a spiritual component to it, right? The land is a spiritual land. He could do more mitzvos in the land. Still, Moshe is not willing to compromise at all. And it's a lesson for us to just demonstrate how valuable whatever that, whatever any mitzvah that you do, how much value it is, and nothing in this world can uh, be of equal value. And it's also interesting how he structures his prayer. So the second verse of the parasha, um, uh, he says, tells the Almighty, you have shown me your greatness and your strong hand. There's no power like you. So it's a very strange verse. Moshe starts praying and then he talks about God's power or what God has shown him. So what did God show him and why is it relevant? So Rashi tells us, hearkening all the way back to Exodus, Jewish people do the golden calf. God says, I'm fed up with these people. I'm going to destroy them all. And now please let me go and I'll destroy them. So Moshe is praying to God and God says, allow me to go destroy them. Now, why would God say, allow me? God doesn't need Moshe's permission to do whatever he wants. So why is the Almighty telling Moshe, allow me to go destroy them? Or it's a, it's a window. Rashi tells us is that what the Almighty is, is, is intimating to Moshe here is that there is a way for you to stop this. The, you have to allow me to go destroy them because there is a way for you to, there is a path for you to follow to change the trajectory the people are on. And if you remember back in Exodus, and again in the book of Numbers, the, two, the Jewish people did two titanic sins in the wilderness, one of them golden calf, second the sin of the spies. In both of them, Moshe prays by talking about God's character, God's what's called midos, the 13 attributes of, of mercy. And what that means here. Uh, what that means in general is that when God, why is God destroying the nation? It kind of, if you read it simply, it seems very strange. Like God says, I'll destroy the nation. Moshe says, well, no, what will Egypt say? You're so merciful. And Mike says, okay, fine, I'll agree to forgive them like you asked. It seems like it's this back and forth that needs a little elaboration. What this means is like this, and this is a little bit of a deep point, so bear with me here. When we talk about the way God treats us, or God's character, or God's midos, as it's known as Hebrew, in Hebrew, that does not describe God himself. God himself does, we say Hashem is one, right? That's the sweet parasha, the Shema. The Almighty does not have actual inherent inborn character. However, God chooses to treat us in a way that is, quote-unquote, his character, even though it's not innate. As an example, like the Almighty says, this world is fixed. Right? The universe is quite large. It's still finite. It's still fixed. There's still a given border of this universe. The Almighty himself is not fixed. So what this means is, and the Kabbalistic sources talk about this a lot, the Almighty says, I'm going to make a limitation. Like the Hebrew word of God, one of the names of God is Shakai, not pronounced like that, but it means die, which means enough. Which means the Almighty says, I'm going to make parameters for the world. There's going to be borders. This world isn't going to operate within a certain framework. And then that framework mandates how the world works. So we have laws of gravity. Those laws were made by God. And those laws are fixed. But every once in a while, the Almighty says, okay, I'm going to change those laws, potentially. And when the Almighty tells Moshe, okay, the people sin with the golden calf, I'm destroying them. 
What that means is, within the framework that the Almighty is now treating the world, they fall outside the realm of acceptable behavior. And therefore, it's necessary for them to be destroyed. However, Moshe is asking God, let's expand the realm of acceptable behavior by enlarging the way you treat the world, by having more kindness, less judgment in the breakdown of how you treat the world. And once you change the the, the, the makeup of how the world operates, and then suddenly the people are within the realm of, of acceptable behavior, or at least behavior that does not mandate their swift destruction. And the Almighty agrees to actually change the way he treats the world. And that happens once by Golden Calf, second time by the Sin of the Spies, and third time Moshe is saying, I want to do that here as well. Within the rules that the Almighty had set up, Moshe's sin, as we spoke about in the book of Numbers, he hit the rock instead of talking to it, that warranted that Moshe can no longer go into the land of Israel. And of course, the reasons are there's many reasons, the nation, Moshe, etc. Moshe is saying, change the way you treat the world. Enlarge the kindness, augment the kindness, and therefore, let's recreate the network or the, the pipeline, the framework, the structure of the world so that now I can enter the land. And the Almighty tells him, no, I'm not doing that. And there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting comment in the sources that if you look at the word Vaishanan, and you know the uh, Hebrew letters have numerical values called gematria, the gematria from the word Vaishanan is 515. And our sages tell us that Moshe prayed 515 times to be allowed to go into Israel. And the Almighty says, no, 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 515 times. And then after 515, the Almighty says, if you pray one more time, I'll have to destroy the world and recreate it. Don't do it. Now, that always was strange to me. What does it mean you have to destroy the world and recreate it? The answer is, is that Moshe had reached the tipping point. Had Moshe prayed one more time, the Almighty would have had to accede to his demands and would have to change the way he treats the world. And perhaps we could say... What the Almighty is telling Moshe is that this works for a nation. If there is an entire nation that is on the brink, either because of the golden calf or because of the sin of the spies, then it's appropriate for God to change the whole way he treats the world. However, for an individual, even someone as great as Moshe, that's inappropriate. Therefore, don't do it. I don't want to have to recreate the way. It's inappropriate for an individual to have to recreate the way the world is functioning or the way it operates. That's what I was, um, to me, this was a big, uh, a big insight in how to understand this whole back and forth between Moshe and the Almighty vis-a-vis Moshe going into the land of Israel and why there's a callback to the golden calf. Like, what, what is the whole story? The whole, the whole episode of the golden calf doesn't seem to have any relevance to our story here. But if you understand the mechanics of how the prayer changed what the Almighty said was his decision, maybe it follows along the same line. So Moshe wants the prayer to go in the land of Israel, and he asks, let me cross the land, let me see it, the good mountain, the Lebanon, which is all references to the temple and temple mount, and the Almighty responds in the negative. Hashem became angry with me, this is verse 26, because of you, he didn't listen to me, 
don't speak to me anymore about this matter. Right? Don't pray anymore. I, I don't. I don't. We don't want. It. We're not going to do this. Instead, go up to the mountain, see the land. You could see it. You can't enter it. That's the first section of the parsha. Now it's interesting. The reason given here why Moshe was not allowed to go into the land is because of the nation. Hashem became angry because of you. Moshe has laid the blame as why his prayer didn't work at the feet of the nation. It's their fault that the prayer didn't work. Uh, Why not? So I saw some interesting commentaries. The Sephorno, he says that um, had Moshe successfully led the nation into the land and established their hegemony in the land then the rule is whatever Moshe does or did became permanent. So Moshe gave us the Torah, and the Torah, we know, there's a pledge, we'll never forget the Torah. The Torah will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. Had Moshe conquered the land, the, our conquest, our sovereignty of the land would have that same status. It would never be able to be undone. And therefore, the reason why the Almighty says you cannot conquer land is because of the nation. And the nation in the future, and this is one of the themes of the Parsha, in the future, after several hundred years of being in the land, they're going to start sinning in a way that's going to mandate their eviction. And if they need to be evicted, however, had Moshe conquered the land, they wouldn't be able to be evicted. Therefore, Moshe can't conquer the land. That's one of the commentaries. And then I saw the Chistuni's commentary. The Chistuni, one of the commentaries of the Parsha, says something fascinating. Why does the Almighty tell Moshe, you cannot enter because of the nation, because of the people? And he says like this, the Almighty is telling Moshe, what's going to be? The historians will look back at this episode in the Torah, and they'll say the Jewish nation left Egypt, 600,000 adult men, they're barreling towards Canaan, and then they have one a sin. Sin of the spies. And the sin of the spies, what's the result of that? The whole generation, all the adults, males that is, not the females, that were privy to this thing, to this sin, they're all going to die in the wilderness over the next 38 years. That's what happened in the book of Numbers. Moshe, for a separate reason, he also sinned and he also was given the same judgment. You're not going to enter the land. So you see Moshe and the entire nation or at least that generation of the nation, they both sinned, and they both were given a punishment, you're not going to enter the land. And Moshe is praying and praying. Who is he praying for? He's praying for himself. And who is he not praying for? He's not praying for the nation. What happens if the Almighty agrees to Moshe's request, and Moshe is allowed to enter? What are people going to say about Moshe? This is a leader? A leader is supposed to act in the best interest of his people. And Moshe is praying for himself and not for the nation. They both were given the same judgment. And Moshe chose to just forget about them and just pray 515 times for himself and ignore the nation. That's inappropriate. The Almighty says to Moshe, you're going to be buried on the eastern bank of the Jordan River with the whole nation. Because that's what a leader does. A leader doesn't abandon his nation. And it would be inappropriate. It would be a blight on Moshe's uh, credentials, accolades as a leader if this would, were to go through, which I thought was really interesting. It does. If, if we're undoing that, we have to undo everything else because that's what a leader does. A leader doesn't abandon his flock. 
So that's uh, chapter three. And now, the rest of this Parsha, I was thinking, like, as, I'm, as I'm researching this, almost any verse can be enough content for a whole, a whole talk, a whole lecture, a whole podcast. Um, so we're trying to do the whole Parsha. So we're going to have to make some concessions, unfortunately. Uh, that's just the way it is. But this is, I would advise everyone, if they have the time, to just sit down and read it because it's really remarkable. Like these are some of the core foundational elements of Jewish faith, of Jewish theology are all, are all in this week's Parsha about Torah, about uh, uh, faith, all that. It's, it's, you know, we have a repetition of the Ten Commandments. We have the Shema, many, many verses that, uh, that are uh, critical verses, part of our prayers, uh, um, just verses that encapsulate all of Torah, what we're supposed to, strive for is found in this parsha many themes that are critical themes of Jewish faith in the nation like they have chosen people where's the term chosen people it shows up in this week's parsha twice so I just want to make that note before we dig in here that there's going to be something so we're not going to give it sufficient um, emphasis uh, just to due to the structure of our pursuit here so the verse uh, chapter 4 begins now O Israel this is again Moshe talking Listen to the decrees and to the ordinances that I teach you to perform so that you may live and you will come to possess the land that Hashem, the God of your forefathers, gives you. Again, this is one of the major themes. Moshe is linking observance of Torah and mitzvos to successful settling and conquest of the land. And this is a theme that's going to be repeated several times. But what it is, it is interesting here that uh, Moshe tells them that if you observe the laws and the ordinances, you'll live so that you may live. What does this mean that you may live? So simply put, we could say that, well, look at your fathers. These are all sons of people who died because of their sins. So Moshe is telling them quite simply, your parents sinned, they're dead. You don't sin and you'll live. That's the simple understanding. I saw one of the other commentaries says this refers to spiritual life, not physical life. What Moshe is informing the nation is that the power of mitzvos is that they give a person spiritual life. And what that means is, is that a person exists on two, uh, on two wavelengths. You exist as a body in a physical, ephemeral uh, life, and you exist as a soul in a spiritual, eternal life. And they're both fused together for 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we're here. Both of them need sustenance. The body, of course, we know. It needs to sleep. It needs to oxygen. It needs water. It needs food. Or else it cannot survive. Well, the soul also needs sustenance. What is that sustenance that keeps the soul alive? Torah and mitzvos. That's what the commentaries say, which is an interesting idea. In general, we think of Torah and mitzvahs, we're doing God a favor. That's a big mistake. We're not doing God a favor. We're feeding ourselves. You're eating breakfast, right? If you're eating breakfast, you know, no one says they're eating breakfast for God. They're eating breakfast for themselves. But they're eating breakfast for their body. What, about, what, what are you feeding your soul? That's Torah. That's mitzvahs, which is a, another very important idea, broadly applicable in everything in all Jewish studies. Verse 2. Do not add... Do not subtract to the mitzvahs of God. Right? We have mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are given to us by God through Moshe. And we should not make our own decisions what to add, what to subtract. It's very dangerous when someone takes a scalpel to any mitzvah in the Torah and says, okay, we're going to take 
cut this out because this one is not modern, it's not relevant, this one is not pertinent to us, this one is ancient, it's obsolete. When someone does that, they're essentially saying that the Torah is subject to their interpretation. Right? It's whatever works with me, then I'll observe or then I'll accept. Whatever doesn't work with me, then I won't. What that does is it uh, casts aspersions of the Torah in general. If the Torah is the word of God, then you should conform to it, not the other way around. The second you take even one mitzvah out, then you're saying that the entirety of the Torah is subject to our decision whether we want to accept it or not. And by doing that, you downgrade the Torah as being the word of God to being the, uh, to being the word of something which is subject to being changed. And therefore, we're told not to add and not to subtract. Now, there's an important question here that all the commentaries, well, they all, they all either address directly or hint, intimate, and that is rabbinic law. We know that there, uh, there's something called rabbinic law. The rabbis over the centuries, the Sanhedrin, they would either add fences around mitzvos, and there's even several rabbinic mitzvos. So what is, how does that jive? How does that uh, not conflict with the verse telling us quite clearly, don't add nor subtract any mitzvos? So Rashi says that when this verse is talking about not to add, not to subtract, it means to a given mitzvah. So for example, tzitzis, right? Four corners, each corner has eight strings and five knots. What if someone says, I want to make a super duper tzitzis? I want to make one with five corners or with 12 corners, and it'll be even a greater mitzvah. Says Rashi, that is the problem with this verse. The verse tells us don't add, don't subtract, don't add to in a given mitzvah. However, you may add new mitzvahs in a rabbinic sense. That's what Rashi says. The Ramban, he gives a much, I think, more kind of direct addressing of this problem. And I think it's an, it's an imperative principle of, 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 of understanding the role of the rabbis uh, is this Ramban. It's only like a two-liner. Um, he says, wait a minute. He asks the question. The verse says, don't add or subtract. We know throughout history, rabbis have added mitzvos, several mitzvos, and many, many ordinances, many fences around mitzvos, around a given mitzvah. Uh, like, for example, the laws of Shabbos uh, include a rabbinic law called muktza. Muktza means anything that is used solely for a prohibited act on Shabbos cannot be moved or carried. So, for example, a pen is a, a tool to use to write. Writing is one of the 39 pro- prohibitions of Shabbos. And therefore, come along to the rabbis and say, don't o- not only not to write, but don't even lift and carry and maneuver with the pen because you may come to write. Uh, this is another example. You're not allowed to uh, pull a branch off a tree on Shabbos. That's one of the 39 prohibitions on Shabbos. Say the rabbis, don't ride a horse on Shabbos because that may lead you to pull a branch and start hitting the horse with it. That was a common practice. Well, that's adding to the Torah, and that's a good question. We have God's Torah. Why do we need to add? That's the Ramban's question. A, why do we need to add? And B, how can we add when the Torah says don't? So the Ramban's answer is there actually is a mitzvah later on in Deuteronomy, we'll get to it, in Devarim, we'll get to it, uh, that tells the rabbi to add. And it, it, it gives framework for how to add it. And it talks about the Sanhedrin, and it talks about, uh, like, the Talmud, which something which is accepted by all of, all of Israel, and they have power to have binding edicts and ordinances upon the Jewish people. The Torah tells us to build a fence. 
So then the question is not how do we build a fence? The question is how does the Torah tell us to build a fence and here tell us not to add mitzvos? And the answer is because don't add mitzvos that are not included in building a fence. That is a fulfillment of a mitzvah. If, if it's a fulfillment of the mitzvah, then you're fulfilling it and you're not adding to the mitzvah because it is part of the framework that's already existing. However, provided that you make clear distinctions, this is a rabbinic mitzvah based upon the verse in Deuteronomy that tells us that rabbis should make mitzvahs when they find it necessary, but it's not a Torahitic original mitzvah. And that's why the Talmud, when the Talmud discusses uh, rabbinic law, it always makes it very clear, this is rabbinic law, and what is the jurisdiction that the rabbis have to add it? Of course, that's from a given Torah mitzvah. And one of the questions, just uh, for those that are a little curious, of uh, uh, Talmudic uh, uh, Talmudic uh, analysis, uh, the big question that some ask, how can we make distinctions between Tal- T- Torah mitzvos and rabbinic mitzvos? Well, if every rabbinic mitzvah is substantiated by a Torah-idic mitzvah of adding fences, well, then by extension, ergo, every rabbinic law is really a Torah law. So how could there be distinction? That's a good question, a little bit more advanced for what we're trying to do here. But regardless, the Rabban does address our question, really interesting solution, uh, and, and also makes it clear what the role of the rabbis are and what their responsibilities are to not make sure that they, to, to not um, lend the impression that they're doing, that they're adding a Torah mitzvah, it's adding a rabbinic mitzvah, which is allowed and encouraged based upon a Torah principle. This role was given to the Sanhedrin. Only Sanhedrin to do this. Sanhedrin was disbanded in 359 of the Common Era. So, well, yes and no. So the Rambam, he discusses that there could be replacements for the Sanhedrin. For example, anything that was accepted by all of Israel that has the status of Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of Israel. Well, if you find a way that all of Israel accepts something as authoritative that has the status of Sanhedrin, even though they're not officially Sanhedrin, they're not sitting in the temple, in the marble chamber, they don't have 71 members, because something was accepted by all of Israel that has the status of Sanhedrin. So, for example, the Talmud. What gives the Talmud binding authority? The Talmud was written in the 6th in the century, 5th and 6th century, it was finished in the 6th century. Says Maimonides, well, that has the status of a Sanhedrin because it was accepted by all of Israel. Um, similarly, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law written in the 16th century, that has the same status because everyone accepted it. All Ashkenazi communities, all Sephardic communities, everyone across the world, every Jewish community accepted it, and that gave it the status of Sanhedrin. Uh, Maimonides also writes that if there is a regional rabbinic council or individual that is the undisputed rabbinic authority, halachic authority of a given locale, then their word has the status of Sanhedrin over their people. So, for example, um, uh, the custom of eating kitniot, of prohibition of eating kitniot on Pesach. In the 12th century, Ashkenazi communities accepted to not eat uh, legumes and various other non-gluten-based uh, grains on Pesach. So, rice and corn, um, uh, beans. Uh, on Pesach, the... Ashkenazic communities universally accepted a custom to not consume it, whereas the Sephardic communities did not. Therefore, it became binding only for Ashkenazic Jewry because they was accepted by the entirety of their community was accepted it, and that has the status, so to speak, of Sanhedrin. Now, of course, it's not a mitzvah, it's a minog, it's a custom, and everyone agrees it's a custom, everyone understands the parameters of it, 
uh, still it becomes binding. Uh, whereas the Sephardic communities, they could consume as much rice as they want in Pesach, and uh, that's totally fine for them because it's, it was never accepted by their community. So there's uh, a whole system of, of understanding how jurisdiction for any matters after Torah, after Torah was sealed, after Moshe, uh, how they get uh, adjudicated. Okay, so verse 4 here, again, we're going rapid fire. There's all these important stuff here that uh, are so critical. Verse 4 is one of the very famous verses of the Torah. Those that cleave to Hashem, your God, will have life forever, for all, 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 all time, basically. And this is used as one of the sources for the idea of the eternality of the soul. The idea of living forever, the idea of the afterlife. We know no one in history that has been documented has lived in this existence forever. Uh, whereas here we see description of someone living forever if they cleave to God. So the Talmud says this is one of the sources, and there's many of them, that prove that the Torah believes in the existence of what we call the afterlife, which ironically... It's not really the afterlife, right? Because afterlife assumes that this is life and that's something afterwards. In, in truth, if you study the sources, this life is the pre-life. And that's just life. But we can call it afterlife, after this life. And this world is preparatory, according to Jewish philosophy, for the real world. Here we're just sweating away to get to the actual goal. This is not the goal. And therefore, this is the pre-life and that's the life. But we'll still call it afterlife. Regardless, this is one of the sources... Uh, for the existence of, um, uh, of, of, of that reality from the Torah. Now, 5, 6, 7, very important verses, and it, it really, I think, addresses a, a question that a lot of people have, and if they don't have, they should have. And Moshe is, again, imploring the nation, we have, we have Torah, we have mitzvot, so we have all these laws, you have to do them. Once you get to Israel, don't abandon them. And then he tells them, verse 6, safeguard and perform the laws, for it is your wisdom and discernment in the eyes of the peoples and who hear the nation, and they'll say, surely a wise and certain people is this great nation. You know, we have a, a, a question I think that uh, we have to ask. You know, the Jewish nation, by any standard, are overachievers. Uh, you look at uh, uh, 25% of Nobel Prize winners, uh, if that's a certain marker of excellence, have been Jews, even the Jews are 0.02% of the population. So we're way overrepresented in areas of excellence, and not just in Nobel Prizes, and technology, and entertainment, and business, and in, right? That's a fact. Uh, yet, in America, which people suffers the most hate crimes more than any other? A lot of talk about, people talk about Islamophobia, everyone hates Muslims. That's not true. Right? Jews suffer more hate crimes than Muslims, or then I don't know, transgender, all the people that are in the in the news, so to speak, that get uh, everyone's sympathy. Somehow, we get a lot of hatred and not a lot of sympathy. And of course, on the, on the world stage, it's well documented that the Jewish nation, the state of Israel, and there's a horrific double standard, and they're not appreciated for what they are. You know, they took a desert and turned it into a thriving, robust, uh, green. Uh, producer, the startup nation, like there's a lot of positivity in a crazy neighborhood in the world, and yet, of course, they get all the anti-Israel resolutions and 
right? Why? Why are we not appreciated? So the question is why? And I think maybe we have an answer over here. The, the, Torah, the Torah here says, what makes the other nations look at us and appreciate us? It's only, it says here, safeguard the mitzvos, for it is your wisdom in discernment in the eyes of the peoples, right? When they see you observing the Torah, they'll say, surely a wise and discerning people is this great nation. The o- and this is what the Torah says. It's like fixed. The only thing that makes us have distinction in the eyes of others is our spiritual accomplishments. And therefore, if we want to have uh, if we want to have a, a, a status, it's important for us to recognize what gives us status. The other nations look at us as the chosen nation, and therefore, if we kind of if we if we maintain the spiritual distinction, then they will appreciate us. That's what the verse here says. The more we embrace our national destiny and legacy of being being the Abrahamic people the greater appreciation we'll have in the eyes of the nation. And, and the verse continues, for which great nation that has God who is close to it, as, a, as is Hashem, our God, whenever we call out to him. Like this is what the verse says, we're the nation that we're close to God. And which is a great nation that has decrees, righteous decrees and ordinances, such as this entire Torah that I place before you today. Right? Our Torah is really what makes us special. The more we embrace it, the more others will appreciate it. And then Moshe goes into this whole chapter, again, so critical, talking about uh, Sinai and how we got the Torah and how we main, we should never forget it. Um, only beware for yourself, be careful, and greatly beware of your soul, lest you forget the things that your eyes have beheld, unless you remove from them from your heart from the entire days, the day that we stood before Hashem at Chorv, at Sinai, and Hashem spoke to us. Moshe is warning the people, exhorting them not to forget Sinai. Sinai is where our nation was founded, and Sinai was where, where as a nation achieved our acme. This is what we are as a nation, and this is upon everything. Everything is, is, is hinges upon Sinai. This is when we had prophecy, this is when we have revelation, and this is when we got the Torah that, is, uh, that embodies what our nation stands for. And that's why it's so important for us uh, to not forget it. And I want to read here a quote from the Ramban. The Ramban writes, just after talking about this mitzvah, to not forget Sinai, and he tells us, he says, well, if we got the Torah from Moshe alone, even though Moshe is great, he's a great prophet, what a great individual, he did so many miracles for us. However, the words of Moshe are still the words of a human. And therefore, if a human could say it, a human can undermine it. And therefore, what's going to be, sometimes there's going to come some individual, some guru, some dreamer, and they'll tell us, do the opposite of Torah. And he'll do some miracle as well. And then people have doubt. Moshe was great. He did miracles. But this person is also great. He also did miracles. Who's to say that Moshe is any greater than this individual? However, now that we got the Torah from God, and we heard it from God, and we saw all these prophetic uh, images then we'll have, we'll be armed uh, with defenses against anyone that can undermine or question it. No matter how many miracles they do, it won't impress us because we know that the person is lying. What this is saying is, what is the insurance policy 
of the continuity and perpetuity of the Torah, it's Sinai. Because at Sinai, we had an experience where we got Torah from God, and therefore it's a divine Torah, and therefore no man, no mortal, can undermine it. And the verse continues by giving a very vivid description of what happened at Sinai. Again, I always tell people, if you want to understand what, like, what is our uh, acclaim as a nation, and we talk about Sinai, it's important for you to read the book and not watch the movie, because you watch the movie, it seems like it's uh, Moshe experiencing prophecy with God and coming down with some tablets. Uh, here, it's very clear, and it's uh, emphasized again and again, where Hashem spoke to you. This is verse 12. From the midst of the fire, you were hearing the sound of the words. And he told you the covenant, and he commanded you, he gave you the Ten Commandments, and he inscribed them on two stone tablets. Uh, again, Moshe is warning them not to make any idolatry. And there's several other times where in this parsha where it mentions that, like, this was not something that other people saw and they told you about. This was you, this nation themselves, they were there at Sinai. And therefore, it's not some ancient testimony. It's um, it's very much something that is uh, that is uh, their own experience. And therefore, again, the big concern, they're going into Canaan, a, a land replete with idolatry. And one of the major themes of the book of Devarim is to warn them and prepare them to, be, to shield themselves from these influences. Don't make any forms. Don't make carved images. Don't worship them. Don't bow to them. If you do, you're in big trouble. And, and then verse 24, For Hashem your God, He is a consuming fire, a jealous God, which, which makes it very clear, if the Jewish people do embrace idolatry, the Almighty will swiftly stamp that out. And we know in history that indeed happened. And verse 25 tells us that it's predicting the future exile. It predicts the exile, and it predicts the, uh, the coming back together. You'll have children, you have grandchildren, you live in the land, and you'll, you'll do idolatry, and I appoint heaven and earth. I promise, and heaven and earth are my, test, are my witnesses, that you will quickly perish from the land. Which, and it's an, an interesting little tidbit here. Verse 25, uh, it says you uh, will be long in the land. And the word in Hebrew is vanoshantem, uh, which means you'll be long in the land. If you do the numerical value of the word vinoshantem, which means you'll be long in the land, it comes up to 852. If you do the math, math historically, from the day the Jewish people entered the land until they were kicked out by Nebuchadnezzar, it's 852 years later, which is pretty astonishing. Now, um, I skipped one thing here I wanted to mention. There's a lot of things here to mention. In verse 20... It gives a description of the Exodus in a very strange way. It describes the Exodus. Hashem has taken you and withdrawn you from the iron crucible from Egypt to be a nation of heritage for him as this very day. It's interesting that the Torah describes the Exodus from Egypt 
or, or Egypt itself as being an iron crucible. What's an iron crucible? Says Rashi, it's a way of purifying gold. If you have unrefined gold, you put in the iron crucible and you make it really, really hot, you're able to separate the elements and purify the gold. It's interesting. Maybe this is more relevant to, let's say, the discussion of, uh, uh, of, of Pesach and the Exodus. But here is a description of what the Exodus was about or what the Egyptian exile was about. It was about purification of gold. It's almost as if when the Jewish people entered this iron crucible, Egypt, they were gold but unrefined gold. After they left, they were purified. And now what that means is it, it does mean that the Egyptian experience was a positive one net-net in aggregate. It wasn't a pleasant one. As I would imagine, it's not pleasant to be heated very hot, but the result is a nation more primed to be, as the verse says, to be a nation of heritage for uh, for Hashem, for the Almighty. Um, it's just, if you want to connect the dots, when God tells Abraham, you're going to be the forbearer of a great nation, he gives a caveat that the nation will be enslaved for 400 years. And the question is why, when the nation is being formed, it's all positive, there's no sin yet, why do we have to have the Egyptian exile? And the answer is because the Egyptian exile, in, in, in aggregate, was the iron crucible was to purify us. What, how we became purified and all that, um, it's uh, another discussion, maybe for another time. Okay, so 26, 27 talked about how the Almighty is going to disperse us throughout the lands. Uh, but eventually we're going to come back and the Mighty will never abandon us entirely. And then it makes a challenge. Some of the very most important verses with respect to understanding the divinity of the Torah. Uh, verse 32 and just verse 32. Uh, and it does impress upon us the uniqueness of the Sinai experience. What does it say? It says, I want you to go search Inquire now regarding the early days that ever preceded you. Go back in history from the day when God created man on earth, from one end of the heaven to the other end of the heaven. I want you to scour all of human history, all of recorded documented human history, and ask the question, has there ever been anything like this great thing or has anything like it been heard? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard and survived? What this is telling us is that the Sinai experience is unique It's happened only once in history. Moreover, it's been claimed to have happened only once in history. It doesn't say, did this thing happen any other time? It says, did this thing happen or did you hear of this thing happening? Not only will this thing not ever happen, claims the Torah, but no one else will ever claim that this thing happened. An entire nation hearing the word of God and surviving. What this means is that the Torah is making a claim that this unique event cannot be replicated. Moreover, it cannot be falsified. Because otherwise, the Torah would not say that this will never be claimed because maybe someone else can make the claim and it's possible to falsify. And what this means, and I think it's, this is a great question to those who question uh, the legitimacy of the Torah or who claim that this is all a bunch of legends and folklore, you have to ask them this very simple basic question. The authors of the Torah essentially suppose there were human authors, right? If there were human authors who made up this whole story of the Sinai experience, obviously they know it's possible to make up 
this hoax because they did it. Why then would they write that no one else will be able to pull off the same stunt, the same steam, the same hoax? Obviously, they know it's possible because they did it themselves. Therefore, they know that they're setting themselves up for failure in verse 32 of chapter 4 in Deuteronomy. Why? Because the verse says no one else will ever claim to have done it. Well, if they did it, someone else could do it as well. Uh, Obviously, it would be insane for a human author who wants to preserve the hoax that this is authored by God, it would be insane for him to put this into the work. And yet it is here. And indeed, it's a great challenge. How is it possible? We're so much more clever than everyone else. We're able to perpetuate or perpetrate a great hoax of national revelation at Sinai and no one else was able to do that. How is that possible? Why are we more clever than anyone else? And why would we put that in a book which sets us up for being uh, challenged and being disproven if it, it does happen some other place in history. And he continues, have you ever heard, um, has the people ever heard the voice, uh, or has any God ever miraculously come to take for himself a nation from amidst the nation with challenges, with signs, with wonders, and with war, with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, with greatly awesome deeds, such as everything Hashem your God has did for you in Egypt. Again, the Egyptian exodus as well, is a once-in-a-history in event where God is intervening to extract one nation from another nation with all these miracles never happened before. And that is concluded in verse, 30, in verse 35. You have been shown to know that Hashem, He is your God. He is the God. There's none other beside Him. Again, this is one of the verses, very iconic verses in the Torah. Ain't old Nevada is nothing besides for God. Uh, and it continues. From heaven, he, 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 he caused you to hear his voice, to teach you. On earth, he showed you the great fire. Because he loved your forefathers, he chose his offspring afterward, after him and took you out before him with a great strength from Egypt. Again, this is the idea of chosen people. The Almighty chose us because he loved our forebears. This is an important point. It's not that the Almighty randomly picked a nation out of the hat to be his chosen people. It's almost the opposite. Because Abraham chose God, that Abraham merited that his descendants will be the chosen people. It says it so clearly. Because Hashem loved our forefathers, their offspring was chosen to be God's people and to have the land of Israel. And then another very important verse, verse 39 you shall know this day and take to your heart that Hashem, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below there is none other. This, again, is an encapsulation of Torah in general. There is, you have to know God exists and you have to take it to heart. There's two steps. We talk about mitzvos. The objective of mitzvos is to make a person have emuna, which is loosely translated as faith. Where does that faith reside? It's faith that resides in the heart not just faith that resides in the mind. It starts with, you have to know in your brain that Hashem is God. However, you have to also transition that into your heart, take it to heart. That's the objective. It's very easy for someone to believe one thing and behave in an entirely different way. Maybe that's still also an accomplishment. To have faith of the mind is also important. When we talk about Amuna, we're referring to faith of the heart. That's the end goal, and that's what the mind wants of us, and that's why we have mitzvos. If someone wanted to say, well, why do we have mitzvos? 
The simple answer is this verse. To know that Hashem is God, but to not, uh, to not um, uh, be, uh, suffice with just faith of the mind to also try to accomplish that that permeates into our heart, into our behavior, into our world, into our worldview and outlook. Verse 40, another very important verse. Observe the decrees and the commandments that I command you today. And what will happen? What do you have to, what do you stand to gain? So he will do good to you and to your children after you. So you'll have long days in the land that Hashem, your God, gives you for all the days. Well, we'll get to the Shema in a little bit, but it does, it does say something similar. Uh, we're told that if the Jewish people observe Torah, it'll be good for them and for their descendants. And then the following verse, what does Moshe do? Moshe sets aside three cities of refuge. So the juxtaposition of these two verses warrants a, an explanation. We've learned in the book of Numbers that uh, when there is a uh, someone who murders accidentally, so they're not executed as a regular murderer, instead they have to go to a city of refuge. They have to go uh, to exile to a different city. And once they're in that city, they can live as anyone else, but they have to live to that city. Now, there are six cities uh, of this variety. Three of them on the eastern bank of the Jordan, where they are presently, and three on the western bank in Canaan and Israel proper. What Moshe is doing here, right away, right over here, he separates the three cities and he lists the three cities where they are right now on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Now, the problem is, why? how does this fit in? Moshe is talking about Torah and Sinai and mitzvot and God and the Exodus, all these big ideas of Judaism. And then in the middle of that, he separates the three cities and announces those three cities. The question is, how, is that, how does that fit into the story right now? And... It's compounded by the fact that the sources tell us that until all six cities are designated, none of the cities work. You have to have six or nothing else helps. So now that there's three cities, you still have three more cities on the other side of the Jordan that you need to separate. And the three cities that are separate on the eastern side have no utility until the other three cities are, are designated. So why would Moshe designate three cities and he has no benefit from it? So Rashi tells us, I'm famous from the Talmud, is that Moshe is saying, I have a mitzvah to do now to separate these three, three cities. I'm not going to let it linger. I'm going to seize my opportunity right now. But the question is, why? how does that fit into this whole discussion? So I saw a magnificent answer by the Kliyakar, one of the commentaries in the Torah. The previous verse talks about how mitzvahs benefit the children. What this means is that even if a person himself doesn't benefit from it, his children, his descendants, the future generations can. As an example, uh, the old grandpa, he plants a uh, citron tree, an esro tree, and by the time the tree bears fruits, he's dead, but his children, his grandchildren can use those for a mitzvah. Uh, so similarly, what Moshe is showing there, he's teaching them this verse. He's teaching them to try to plant seeds of mitzvahs now even though they won't kick into the future. So even though these three cities won't be applicable in a practical way until the future, still he's showing them, I'm going to separate them now, I'm going to seize the mitzvah, even though it won't uh, have any applicability uh, until later. So the Torah lists those cities, and on to chapter 5.
Uh, Moshe, uh, again, exhorts the nation to heed and hearken to the rules and to the ordinances that I'm commanding you to, to learn them, to observe them, to perform them. And he again impresses upon them the Almighty, he made a pact with us at Sinai, not with our grandfathers thousands of years ago, but with us, with people present today. He spoke to us face to face uh, from the mountain amidst the fire. Again, if anyone claims that this was just Moshe at Sinai, they're just, it's, it doesn't, it's not compatible with the actual text of the verse. Face to face, this highest level of prophecy Jewish people had with God. And Moshe is telling them, I'm standing between God and between you to explain what these mean. And the verse continues to give us, Moshe is telling them what are the Ten Commandments. And it goes through all Ten Commandments. And it's interesting if you actually compare this rendition of the Ten Commandments to the one in uh, when it happened in Exodus, the middle of Exodus, chapter 20, there are slight differences. So Moshe, when he is speaking to the entire nation, giving his lecture, the end-of-life lecture, and he tells them about the Ten Commandments, he repeats, remember what happened 40 years ago where you were all there, uh, or you were younger then, but still you were there. I'm talking to people who actually experienced this, and he repeats the Ten Commandments. And it's, it is bizarre that Moshe does add some commentary to them. Uh, the first two that God, we know at Sinai, God gave two mitzvahs directly, and the last eight through Moshe. The people couldn't handle it. And therefore, if you actually compare, it's a great exercise to compare uh, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy with chapter 20 of, of Exodus, you'll notice that the first two commandments, Moshe doesn't alter a word. Moshe doesn't add any commentary whatsoever. That was given directly by God, and therefore Moshe is not going to tamper, not tamper with, but he's not going to amend it in any way to add explanatory notes. Just gives it over the exact way that it was given by God. Uh, however, with the ensuing eight, Moshe is explaining a little bit each verse, adding some more commentary to make it more understandable to the nation. Uh, after the Ten Commandments, he repeats, these are the words that Hashem spoke to you from, uh, from the mountain, from the fire, describing again what happened. It was written in two stone tablets. And uh, he again goes through uh, the conversations that he had with the nation. The people were terrified. They, were, uh, they weren't managing. You speak to us, let not God speak to you. Moshe says, okay, he'll tell over what God tells him. Again, this is another uh, repetition of what happened in Exodus. And chapter 6 continues with the same theme, and it does uh, launch into the Shema, which is, of course, the Pledge of Allegiance of the Jewish nation. And the Shema begins in verse 4. And if you'll notice in a Torah scroll and in every verse, you'll look at the verse of the Shema, six words. The last letter of the first and the last letter of the last, they produce the word aid, which means witness, which means testimony. These are the words of testimony. If you want to encapsulate what we believe as a nation and what we're trying to accomplish as a nation, it is condensed in these six words. Uh, I remember a couple of years back, uh, I gave a talk on the Shema, and while researching the subject for today, I looked at my notes, and I found something very clever that I had written, so I thought I'd repeat it. I said that the Shema is like the, um, 
It's like the announcements, but they make the TSA, not the TSA, the announcement they make on a plane. Don't tamper with, disable with, or destroy, right? If you are on the unlikely event, you may land in water, right? How to inflate the life vest and how to put the oxygen mask, all those things that we just glaze over. We've heard so many times. Uh, well, why do they say it? They say it because the minute chance you may, if, you know, God forbid, there is a landing over water, it's very important that everyone knows, everyone has it into their brains. So imagine uh, there was a plane crash every single day. How much more important would it be to know exactly what to do? I said, the Shema is what we need to do for the plane crash that happens every day. Every day, we're thrown into the world, a world that pushes us entirely in the opposite direction from God. And this is the Shema. This is the instructions of what we need to know, know, what we need to believe to avoid catastrophe that we face every day. Uh, And just... Simply, of course, we could spend an entire a month talking about the Shema, but what, what the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. And, of course, there's many interpretations. Simply put, we say Hashem, the, Hashem Elokeinu, which is Hashem is our God, the two names of God, uh, which is, on one hand, it's mercy, on the other hand, it's, it's judgment. On one hand, it's God's uh, 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 existence in the past, present, and future, the fact that God is from a different a realm. Uh, Elohim means God has all the powers. Hashem is one. Rashi tells us, Rashi brings it a very practical way. Uh, he describes this as this being the Jewish people's mission. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem is our God. Right? We are God's people in this world. What's our mission? To bring Hashem Echad. To bring the fact that it's universal. The fact that Hashem is one, it becomes accepted by all the nations. We talk about what does Tikkun Olam mean? We've got to fix the world. Why do we need to fix the world? Because it's only Hashem Elokeinu. It's We're the only nation that, it, that knows of God in a visceral, palpable, tangible way. What is our goal? To bring about the fact that that becomes ubiquitous throughout the world. Another theme that the Talmud tells us when we're supposed to say Shema, it's about accepting the yoke of God. It's a mitzvah we're required twice a day to say the Shema. It's the first thing we teach a child. It's the last thing someone, a Jew, utters before they die. It's the idea, it's the rallying cry of the nation. It's what we, we are accepting our commitment and our requirement, the responsibility to uphold to this virtue. And of course, the following paragraph, the upcoming paragraph talks about the Vahafta, we have to love God which demonstrates that the idea of God is not supposed to be limited to the theological. It's supposed to penetrate our behavior. It's supposed to uh, become on a very practical, emotional level. How do you love God? says the next verse, and the words that I'm instructing to you should be on your heart. How do you have God penetrate your heart? Via Torah. And of course, there is a, there is a very critical Rambam, Maimonides, where he describes the whole process of how theological, theoretical, intellectual ideas get penetrated into the emotional sphere, into the emotional realm. And he says here, how do you love God? In verse number five, you go to verse number six, which is study Torah. Torah is because it's God's mind, and that is something we are able to understand, even though God himself we're not able to understand. It's sort of a, a proxy. If we want to appreciate God, we appreciate his Torah, or even we appreciate his world. And by dint of appreciating God's Torah, God's world, 
we can gain an inside understanding into God himself and that will usher it into our heart and engender an emotional bond, not just an intellectual bond. Uh, another interesting theme from the Shema, from this chapter, from this uh, paragraph, is the commentaries actually note, if you take just these several verses, beginning from verse 4 through verse 9, so these six verses, you could actually find themes of all Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are a microcosm of all of Torah, and again, in the Shema, in the first chapter of the Shema, uh, it intimates all these ten. So, for example, Hashem is our God. Well, that's the first of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord, your God. Hashem Echad, Hashem is one. Don't have any other ones. Don't have any foreign gods. Uh, when we say the verse of Baruch Shem Tvoim Ve'ed, we say it's a pledge not to say God's name. Right? When someone by mistake says God's name in vain, Right away they say, Baruch We love our God. Wait, Shabbos is a day of love and holiness. Uh, the words of Torah. Well, who teaches you Torah? Your parents. Got to respect and honor your parents. Uh, we talk about not to murder, right? Teach Torah to your children. If someone doesn't teach Torah to their children, it's if they're murdering them, right? Because they're murdering their soul. If someone doesn't feed their soul, they're starving their kid, right? Verse says here, teach your children, and that is connected to not murdering. Uh, speak them in the house. That talks about the house life of someone. Don't have adultery. Bind them as a sign unto your arm. That refers to not stealing. Fill them between your eyes, not to bear false witness. And on your doorpost, which is the transition between your world and your neighbor's world, not coveting. Again, of course, we're going through this very quickly, but this is just to get a feeling of, of the importance of these verses. Uh, and again, Moshe is highlighting the fact that we're getting into the land and there's going to present new challenges. We're going to get to the land. The land promised to your forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Great cities full of amazing benefits that you didn't do. And whenever there is abundance and wealth, there is the risk of forgetting God. So verse 12 reminds us when you get to the land and you have a robust uh, wealth and stability and tranquility, make sure you don't forget God. Because when you're a slave, as you were in Egypt, it's very easy for someone to latch onto God. When things are really, really bad, ironically, we cleave to God. Things gets really good, that's a unique challenge. I saw this week a story. There was someone who was really wealthy and then he lost all his money. And he went to the great rabbi and he said to him, why does he might do that? I was, such, I was so righteous. I gave charity. I was good. So he so the rabbi tells him, well, the Almighty wants you, here is all about challenges. So you were given one challenge, wealth, and you passed that challenge. Now you're given a different challenge. You're, that you're, that you're, you have poverty, you have to face that challenge. So maybe we shouldn't be too successful <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the challenge of wealth. But here we, we see what the challenge is. When things are really, really great in this world, it's very easy to forget the next world. Uh, and... Don't test God, verse 16. We're told not to test God. There's one exception. There's one area where you are allowed to test God. That's with regards to charity. The Talmud tells us there's only one area where someone is allowed and is encouraged to test God by giving aser b'shvil shatit asher. Give tithing, give 10% of your char- of your money to charity in order that you become wealthy. And this is the one area where you are allowed and encouraged to test God. We're given... Uh, the importance of teaching the tradition to the children. This is actually something which appears in the Haggadah. 
uh, which is uh, sections, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 20 and on. We were slaves to Pharaoh. Your child asks you, why are we doing the Pesach? It's reminding him about the Exodus. Um, and finally, the Parsha ends with chapter 7. Again, Moshe preparing them of the interactions with the nation that they're going to uh, conquer. He lists the seven nations that are there. The Amayas will allow you to conquer it, make sure you destroy all remnants of these people, they're very dangerous. Don't make a treaty with them and don't uh, don't show them favor. Right? If they want to, you have to, you have to know that you're coming there and you have to establish hegemony. If you don't, if you allow them, they're going to lead you astray. Don't intermarry with them, which is, by the way, the source of intermarriage, prohibition of intermarriage from the Torah is here. Don't allow your son to marry their daughter or vice versa. Uh, and additionally, the following verse, verse 4, we talk about matrilineal versus patrilineal descent. Where in the Torah does that uh, show up? It shows up in verse 4 of chapter 7. Um, and it's also one of the most misunderstood aspects of Torah, uh, this idea that matrilineal descent. What does that mean? It means that your Judaism comes from your mom. That's not what it says anywhere. That's how it works mathematically, but that's not what it says what this means is, and I'll say this quite briefly, what this means is the Torah preceded by telling us that if someone um, if someone marries, someone's not allowed to marry, a Jew is not allowed to marry one of these seven nations. Well, what happens if they do? Well, that, that union is not recognized by Torah. Because the Torah says, don't do that. So if you do that, that's it, not recognized. Therefore, a woman becomes pregnant. So normally we say, well, who is this woman's husband? Right? Who, what family is she from? However, if the Torah does not recognize that union, all we have is a woman, right? We don't, we don't, we see her husband, and that's not a union we recognize. So we just see the woman. So therefore, the child follows her. If she's Jewish, the child's Jewish. If she's not Jewish, the child's not Jewish. But it doesn't mean that generally there's this idea of matrilineal descent. That's not what it means. It just means that when there is a union not recognized by Torah. The Torah says, okay, if there's a child born, it's an immaculate conception. I have no idea how this happened. I don't see any husband anywhere. Okay, well, who's the parent? All I see is one parent. Well, the child will follow the parent. Uh, generally, uh, if the father's a Kohen, right, in a normal case where there's a union recognized by Torah, uh, then father's a Kohen, child's a Kohen. Mother's a Kohen, child's not a Kohen. Child, follows, child, child will follow the father. So again, that's a little bit of a misconception. But uh, regardless, this is the source of, uh, of this idea in the Torah. And if you want to understand exactly how it works out in the nitty-gritty, in verse 4, it says, He will cause your child to turn away from you. So what does this mean? It's talking about intermarriage previously. Uh, a Canaanite man should not marry a Jewish woman. A Jewish man should not marry a Canaanite woman. But then it says, he will lead your son astray. So who's he? He is the Canaanite. And who's your son? That's your daughter's son. If your daughter marries the Canaanite, he will lead your grandson away. Says the Talmud, he will lead your grandson. The child comes from your daughter is still your grandchild, but not vice versa. Regardless, this is the source. The Parsha ends... With, with Moshe warning the nation that they don't have this freebie. They don't have this 
immunity. And he tells them, you weren't chosen because you're great or you're numerous or whatever. You were chosen because of your antecedents, because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, you don't have this free reign to say, we can do whatever we want. We get to Israel and it's ours by right. Yes, it's yours by right, conditional on your behavior. Therefore, you get to Israel, you destroy the idols, destroy all the various kinds of idols, idols trees and idols mountains, idols temples, all that, destroy them all. Be a holy nation, be a chosen nation, and then you'll be able to thrive in the land. However, if you unfortunately choose the opposite, you'll be kicked out very quickly. And the Parsha concludes with the Almighty telling them, with Moshe telling them that the Almighty is is fair, he's just, he will keep his side of the deal if you keep your side. However, if you choose to become a hater of God, he promises to destroy you and to not allow that to delay. Hence, concludes the Parsha, you should guard the mitzvah and the laws and the edicts that I am commanding you today to do. This was a heavy-duty Parsha. A lot of major, major themes that are critical to Jewish faith, but the overwhelming principle of the Parsha is the fact that the Jewish people are about to get into a very challenging situation, and they have to be ready for everything, all the curveballs and all the headwinds that they are going to be facing. And next week, Parsha's Akev will continue this grand speech of Moshe to the nation.